Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Kei whakaronga mai koe ki tō tātou ao horihori, hei hōtaka i pānaki tō tātou ao You're with Our Changing World here on RNZ National. And now, it's been a big week for science. On Tuesday, 12 outstanding scientists were awarded medals at the Royal Society of New Zealand's Research Honours event. And on Wednesday, John Key announced the 2015 Prime Minister's Science Prize winners. Research into bone health was the big winner. It earned Ian Reid, an endocrinologist at the University of Auckland's School of Medicine, the Rutherford and Lyle medals. And he's also part of a team of bone researchers, together with Andrew Gray and Mark Boland, who received the PM's Science Prize. The Bone and Joint Research Group was awarded the top prize for research that showed that there is no scientific evidence to support the use of vitamin D and calcium supplements to prevent osteoporosis. The team showed that there are no health benefits from the supplements and that taking calcium can even cause harm by increasing the risk of a heart attack. Ian Reid and Mark Boland tell Veronica Maduna that their findings busted a medical myth and changed the clinical management of osteoporosis. We didn't set out to be mythbusters. The key trial, the Auckland Calcium Study, which triggered, um, I guess, our scepticism in this area, I designed with a view to proving once and for all the benefits of calcium on the skeleton and elsewhere. And that's why we um, specified heart attacks and other heart problems as secondary endpoints in that study because our hypothesis was that actually calcium might decrease your risk of heart disease. And there were some strands of evidence that suggested that we had already shown that calcium lowered blood pressure a little bit um, and that calcium improved cholesterol profiles and blood a little bit and so that was our reason for that secondary hypothesis but what we found was quite the opposite so you know I think an important element of research is having the courage to believe your own findings and so in 2008 um, we found to our great surprise that heart attacks were significantly more common uh, in the women in that study who were randomized to receive calcium rather than randomized to receive placebo and that was really what set us off on exploring whether that adverse effect was present in other databases and other trials and then more recently exploring what the potential mechanisms for that were. And I guess the same issue really in relation to vitamin D. I don't think we really set out to bust a myth in relation to vitamin D, but really to be disciplined with the data and say what does the data show so that we can then generate some sensible uh, recommendations for the general public and also for clinical practice that are based on data, not based on hype. You've then gone on to collate data from a number of studies? Yeah, so after uh, Ian's first study was published, in an ideal world we would have done a very large clinical trial of calcium supplements or placebo um, with heart attacks as the primary endpoint of the study. But 
the prime, our primary hypothesis would be then that people taking calcium would have been harmed by being in the trial, and so that's ethically inappropriate. So the only option was then to go and gather all the existing trials that had been carried out and to see if the same signal was present in that. And so that, that took quite a long time, actually. Um, it was several years of contacting people and encouraging them to give up their data. And in a, a number of cases, they had to go back and, or I had to go back and look through their data and adjudicate events and decide whether they were heart attacks or not. But at the end of that process, which was probably about a two-and-a-half, three-year process, we had uh, about 11 clinical trials of calcium supplements or a placebo, and in those trials there was a, around a 27 to 31% increase in heart attack in people who were assigned to calcium rather than taking a placebo in the trial. And there was also a slight um, tendency towards an increased risk of stroke, but that wasn't as definitive as, as the, um, the evidence for the heart attack was. The immediate question that people asked was, whether the same risk applied to taking calcium and vitamin D or was it just confined to taking calcium by itself. And so the following year I got an, a hold of another database um, and analysed that specifically looking at calcium and, data, um, and vitamin D versus placebo and we found this almost identical results really um, so that it didn't seem to matter whether it was calcium by itself or calcium and vitamin D together um, the risk of heart attack and both stroke um, is slightly increased. Essentially what you found is that taking those supplements calcium and vitamin D when you think that you might be at risk of osteoporosis, not only don't have any benefits, but they actually could cause harm. Yeah, and I think that was quite a transformational shift for many people. There had been a widespread acceptance that the effects of calcium and vitamin D on fractures were fairly small, if there were any, but people felt, well, any benefit is probably worthwhile. But the suggestion then when there might be harm from taking them, I think, did cause a lot of people to reconsider whether we should be taking calcium or not. And it's quite interesting if you go back to the original trials and look at each trial on an individual basis, in every trial there's a side effect that outweighs the, the benefit that you get. In Ian's trial that he did, there were actually more women who had hip fractures and heart attacks than benefited from taking calcium and, and by preventing fractures. And there's other side effects as well. There's um, an increased risk in kidney stones in another trial. In another trial had people were admitted to hospital suffering from stomach complaints, and that was more common than preventing fractures. So when you go through and systematically review the evidence, the risks of, of calcium supplements in all of the trials, either individually or collectively, do outweigh the benefits from them. But the stimulus for actually looking at this came from our findings about heart attacks. So what was the response so far from both the medical profession, from GPs prescribing those supplements or recommending those supplements, and also the dairy industry? I don't know that we've had a formal response from the dairy industry. I, I think the response um, across 
the medical professions has varied. So I think cardiologists know that there is calcium deposited in the arteries of their patients who have heart attacks, so they're not particularly surprised. And in fact, um, you know, we've received sort of praise for our courage in bringing this forward from some of the people working in vascular biology. Again, um, doctors who look after patients with kidney disease are very conscious of calcium deposition in arteries as the cause of death of many of patients on dialysis or with long-term kidney disease. So again, they have been not surprised. And in fact, in the particular area um, of kidney disease, there have been a number of other trials running in parallel with the work which we've done, which have shown in those patients that calcium is actually significantly damaging in the context of formal randomised trials. So I think from those areas of medicine there hasn't been any great surprise. Within the bone community, um, you know, most of us have been reared on the idea that calcium is the cause and the cure of osteoporosis and so I think it's taken a lot of people there somewhat longer <clears throat> to come to terms with this information. A lot of the emphasis on calcium as being a really important determinant of your risk of developing osteoporosis was based on a technique known as calcium balance studies that were done in the 1970s. And they were done at that time because that was the only way we really had of looking at what was happening to your skeleton because people couldn't measure bone density directly at that time. And those studies suggested that the more calcium you push into people, the more is retained. But I think actually with the technology that we've developed in the 80s 90s and since then of bone densitometry, it's quite clear that the information that came from those calcium balance studies is misleading, that you cannot stop postmenopausal bone loss with calcium supplements alone. And I think the very detailed analyses that Mark published in the British Medical Journal just last month show very clearly that there is a small effect on bone density from taking calcium supplements. It's 1% after one year of use. It's exactly the same after two years of use, and it's exactly the same after three or more years of use. So it's not a cumulative benefit, it's just a minor tweaking um, of bone density and it doesn't in the best studies translate into a reduction in fracture. So I think we're looking not just at um, a review of the safety of calcium supplements but I think particularly following Mark's more recent analyses, what we're having to do now is take stock of the whole role of calcium intake as a contributor to the problem of osteoporosis and with that um, a reconsideration um, of its role as a way of uh, preventing or diminishing postmenopausal bone loss. And I think we're coming to the conclusion that actually it really has very little role as either a cause or as a cure. Some reaction around the rest of the world is in various stages of evolution in relation to those suggestions. But I think it's significant that most of the international organizations that provide advice to the public and a number of government organizations in the United States um, have backed off from the endorsement of calcium supplements. Probably the next major challenge at that sort of level is to reevaluate the recommendations relating to calcium intake. And again, they have been significantly diminished from the recommendations that were commonly um, being promulgated a decade ago. But certainly our more recent work suggests that we should be backing off further on those um, and in fact that the number of people, particularly community dwelling independent people in a western country who need to take extra calcium in any form is probably much less than we thought it was before and certainly that calcium supplements probably have almost no role to play um, in otherwise healthy community dwelling individuals. Just to add to what Ian said, I think that it's an example of where there's entrenchment bias 
in medical practice and that people who grew up with the idea that calcium was essential for bone health I think have really found the research very troubling but we work for the university and we teach medical students and we often present this results to people who haven't grown up with it and they look at the evidence and go well there's nothing really to see here let's move along there's no uh, story and we're not going to prescribe calcium and what's happened in New Zealand is that there's been about a 70% reduction in calcium prescriptions since we published our research and I think that re really reflects that people who do not have a vested interest when they're shown the information they stop taking calcium supplements because they don't see the benefits for it. And just to add further to that around the world it's quite hard to get data on exactly how much calcium is sold but we think that the total worldwide sales are about 6 billion and probably there's been around about a 20 to 30 percent decrease in sales across the world um, since we published our research so probably in the order of one to two billion dollars. So this is calcium alone we're not even talking about mm, vitamin, D. vitamin D. No. So let's perhaps explore that you know your findings on that before I'd love to talk more about osteoporosis but if we could just um, check in on vitamin D first. Well the vitamin D story we have not done large trials but I guess the role we've had more there and again this is work that's predominantly been led by Mark has been to bring together all the data around vitamin D. So there has sprung up in the last decade I suppose almost an industry of people measuring vitamin D levels in a whole variety of different conditions and finding that they tend to be lower in people who suffer from that condition from the laboratory normal range or sometimes from healthy controls. Now a number of people writing those papers have inferred that the low vitamin D has caused the medical condition, whether it's high blood pressure or obesity or diabetes or depression, or the, the list is almost endless. Um, a second possibility in terms of interpreting those findings is that people who suffer from a medical condition spend less time outdoors, and where do we get our vitamin D from? We get it from exposing our skin to sunlight. And so it might actually be that the low vitamin D levels represent a consequence of a variety of different medical conditions rather than their root cause. And so the focus initially was on bone disease, bone density, and fractures. And so um, last year we published a major meta-analysis of all of the bone density studies uh, in the Lancet, and what we found there was that for, with one or two exceptions of groups who started with very low bone densities, overall there was no benefit to community dwelling individuals from taking uh, vitamin D. It didn't have any influence on your bone density and higher doses of anything had a detrimental effect. And then what Mark has also done is look at the effects of vitamin D supplements on uh, cancer um, and on cardiovascular disease and on falls and actually demonstrate pretty much the same null effect. Those conditions may be associated with lower vitamin D levels, but giving people extra vitamin D does not prevent those particular problems. We've been sceptical about vitamin D supplements and the benefits that people have claimed for them for a number of years. And partly it's been because there's quite a lot of evidence has been published about vitamin D. There's probably about 20 trials. But researchers who don't believe the results of those trials have gone back and endlessly reanalyzed them through meta-analyses to produce positive results from meta-analyses suggesting that vitamin D supplements should be used. Almost all meta-analyses have tended to conclude that we need more research. 
And I found that quite troubling because we already had a large number of clinical trials involving um, about 50,000 people and vast amounts of money had been spent on them. And yet these prominent academic people continued to say we need more research. And even though that the trials were mainly negative, that we should do more of them and continue to supplement people with vitamin D. And so we used a, a new technique to try and say, well, do we actually need to do more clinical trials? And this technique is called trial sequential analysis, and it hadn't been applied to vitamin D before. But it gave a really clear response. It said that in some groups of people, there might be very small benefits from vitamin D um, on uh, hip fractures, but the, the groups are very limited. And for overall, for otherwise generally healthy people, they're any benefits that you'd get from vitamin D are, in, are very, very small for fractures or for any of the other major outcomes that we could see. And most importantly, that doing more trials wasn't going to change that. So we could conclude that there was actually really good evidence that people don't need to take vitamin D, but more importantly, we don't need to waste research money on doing more trials when their results are unlikely to change what we already know. And I think it's important to emphasise on what Mark just said, that that applies to generally healthy community-dwelling individuals because there's no question that people um, who are permanently indoors, so we're talking about very frail or chronically ill people, don't get sunlight exposure and therefore do become severely vitamin D deficient. So I think um, modest vitamin D supplementation in people in rest homes and private hospitals remains an important way of preventing the severe demineralisation of bone that will occur with severe vitamin D. D deficiency, and that's called osteomalacia. But I think what the work we're talking about now relates to is those who are generally healthy, those who are leading um, uh, independent existences who believe that they can use vitamin D as a tonic. And I think that's been as big a failure as all the other vitamins that people have tried to use as a general tonic for improving uh, their well-being across a number of different organ systems. So a range of supplements, really, that... It falls into the same category? Yes, we actually seem to keep seeing the same issue around the supplement industry that a variety of different mineral and vitamin supplements are touted on flimsy evidence to have medical benefits. The public seems to have a propensity for latching on to those um, possibilities and so you wind up with widespread use of what is effectively um, an unproven medical intervention and I, I think if something has the name of vitamin or of mineral attached to it somehow we don't apply the same rigor of evaluation as we would if we called it a pharmaceutical or a drug. I think anything that is a vitamin or a mineral that is plausibly biologically active is plausibly beneficial but it's also plausibly detrimental and so I believe that supplements should be investigated with the same degree of rigour as we investigate novel pharmaceuticals so we can find out exactly what they do do and that's good and exactly what they do do that's bad and we can then come to a proper judgement as to the relative merits. Could I bring you back to calcium and osteoporosis? We've just established that there's a group, small group of people who may benefit from vitamin D if they don't get enough sun. When you think about the calcium and you know bone health in general, but osteoporosis, osteoporosis remains a risk for menopausal women and older men, and there are people who have it in earlier life. What 
should or could they be doing to either prevent it or help it? We've actually got a bit of a disconnect between the science and the public information. One of the most widely used um, techniques for predicting who's going to have problems with osteoporosis is a a group of fracturous calculators, and perhaps the most prominent one is is known as FRAX, and that's endorsed by the World Health Organization. And that's based on data from about 65,000 different people across a variety of different countries. And what that tells us are the things that predict your risk of having a fracture are how old you are, what your bone density is, what your body weight is. Being skinny is bad for your skeleton and increases your risk of fractures, particularly hip fractures, substantially. Whether you smoke, which is bad for your risk of fractures, as it is for almost everything else. And if you drink, have more than three uh, alcoholic drinks a day. And some of the other fracture risk calculators place an emphasis on falls. So I think those are the public health messages in terms of prevention of osteoporotic fractures. People should maintain a healthy body weight. A postmenopausal woman of average height should aim to weigh more than 60 kilograms. But the opposite end of that scale, I guess, is not good for your skeleton either. So we're talking normal weight, healthy weight, rather than skinny or... Or too much. Being grossly overweight probably is not particularly bad for your skeleton, but it's not good for any other part of your body. It's bad for your joints and it's bad for your cardiovascular system and so on. So we're certainly not endorsing obesity. But I think perhaps the most single most important public health message in terms of osteoporosis prevention, and this really applies from the time of puberty onwards, is not to be too thin, particularly if you're female. And so we should be aiming for a healthy body weight and we should be maintaining that with a balanced uh, diet. And I think particularly in older people, calcium uh, in their diet is something that's been emphasized, but protein in their diet and just general caloric content of their diet, particularly in the very elderly, become quite significant issues and barriers to their maintaining a healthy body weight. So I think the public health messages are don't be too skinny, don't smoke, don't have an excessive alcohol intake. And I think the second aspect of osteoporosis prevention is that postmenopausal women at some stage, probably around the age of 60 to 65, should have a bone density measurement. And if that indicates that they have a, a major potential issue uh, with bone loss and a high fracture risk, then they should consider taking the medications that are now available for preventing further bone loss. And increasingly, as men are living longer and osteoporotic fractures are becoming a problem in men, we're providing similar sort of advice for men but probably a decade or so later uh, because men start with stronger bones and they don't lose them quite so dramatically. But I think osteoporosis is a major problem for any one in our community who lives into old age and increasingly people are living you know, beyond the age of 83 school years and 10 is not what we expect to get anymore um, and so there are a lot of octogenarians around and almost all of those people are at high risk of fracture and so need to be thinking very actively about how they can diminish that fracture risk and calcium is really not going to help significantly in that regard and has the adverse effects that both Mark and I have talked about. So is that where your future research in this area will go? What will you use the money for specifically? Where our research is going at the moment is we're looking much more at prevention of bone loss. There have been some important developments in terms of the pharmaceuticals that we have available for treating osteoporosis, and particularly uh, zoledronate, which is one of the most powerful medications in the bisphosphonate class, appears to have a very long duration of action. And one of the key changes that takes place at menopause is that the balance between the activity of bone-forming cells and bone-resorbing cells that 
we have all through our skeleton is lost. So that in a postmenopausal woman, there is more activity from the bone-resorbing cells, and that's what leads to bone loss. And so we've hypothesized, based on a lot of clinical work that we've done over the last 20 years, that small doses of um, zoledronate, and by small doses I mean an intravenous infusion once every couple of years or possibly as infrequently as once every five years, which is a possibility that Mark's actively investigating, that those small doses of a drug that damps down the activity of the bone-resorbing cells can restore the balance between bone formation and bone resorption. And we believe that giving a drug such as that once every two to five years is going to be acceptable to people. People do not want to get into taking tablets every day for preventing an eventuality that may be 10 or 15 years away. Um, And so we have two big trials going on at the present time, and people who are at intermediate risk of fracture, so they don't actually have osteoporosis yet, but their bone densities are heading in that direction, to see if we can maintain their bone density and prevent fractures over you know, 6 to 10 to 15 year period. So we feel that waiting until you've got osteoporosis and had fractures is a very short-sighted way of dealing with what is becoming almost a pandemic problem affecting more than 50% of older women. Um, And so if we can target people in their 50s or in their 60s, the two trials we have are looking at those two different possibilities and try and maintain bone density so that when you're in your 70s and your 80s, your likelihood of having fractures is substantially diminished. So that's one of the new areas that we're working on at the present time. The prizes for doing a piece of research that's transformational, and when you're doing transformational research, it's risky research, and often risky research isn't viewed favourably by funders. And in New Zealand, funding is very tight for research and right across the science field. One really useful thing that we could do would be to fund the salary of a bright young person coming through who we think does have the potential to be a leader in the future and can perform transformative research. That was Ian Reid who was awarded the Rutherford and Lyley medals for his work on bone health. And you also heard from Mark Boland, who's part of the team, together with Andrew Gray, that won the 2015 Prime Minister's Science Prize. They are all at the University of Auckland's School of Medicine. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this, you can find more stories on our webpage, radionz.co.nz forward slash Our Changing World. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.